0: Uh, If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Romans chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 12 today, and we're going to go all the way to the end of chapter 2, and we will jump into 3 next week right there. But uh, if you didn't bring it with us or you're sitting there on your couch at home, again, good news is you're at home and you can easily grab your Bible. Uh, If you did not bring it, we will be putting it up on the screen. It'll be easy for you to follow along with there. But the question I want to deal with today is about hope, right, and making room for hope in the middle of hopelessness. And so I don't know if you guys are there right now in this season of hopelessness, which many of us may be in. I don't know if you've ever felt it before. It's not a feeling that many of us want to embrace or want to be in very long, but I'll never personally forget the very first time I ever felt it myself. I was in fifth grade. I was on a vacation with my best friend out in Puerto Vallarta with his family, and uh, he and I were out in the waves in the beach. Uh, we were having a good time in the ocean that day, and I remember it was just after, actually it was a number of years after Karate Kid, but quite honestly, Karate Kid never goes out of style. How many of you guys love that movie? Uh, it is the greatest movie in the history of the world. But uh, anyway, it uh, never went out of. So it's probably five years after the fact. But we were doing the whole Mr. Miyagi scene. We were in the water. And he's like, "Balance, son balance. It's all about balance, you know." And so we're we're like attacking the waves, diving in. And it was one of these days that the waves were a lot bigger than normal. And so it was a lot of fun to try to see if you can get if you can stand up when the waves were crashing over you. Uh, anyway, it was time to kind of go in, so I turned around and I was kind of slowly walking back into the beach, and that's when I kind of left my guard down and just got blindsided by this massive wave, it took me out as a little fifth grade kid, and I don't know if you've ever had this happen before, but it's one of these times where the wave was so big, I was caught off guard, it crushed me and put me under the water, and, and, and it, like, it, it pins you down to the bottom of the sand. And I was trying to do everything to fight my way back up to the top of the water. And I, no matter how hard I tried, like the, um, everything was, the, the wave crashing down on top, the undercurrent underneath me, it was keeping me, sucking me down to the bottom, and I could not get back out. And I was absolutely freaking out and panicking, saying, Father, is this the end? And so the, anyway, the reason I bring that up, like, like the passage we're looking at today, by the end of chapter two, you're going to feel a little bit like I did that day. It's going to bring you to this place of hopelessness, and you're going to be sitting there, kind of going, "Okay, Father, like, what in the world am I doing? Like, where am I supposed to go uh, from this?" But I want you to know, like, there's intentionality in the feeling of hopelessness. He's going to bring you into today. Uh, in fact, I was reading an article from the Atlantic that was talking about this. About I think it was back at the beginning of the September, but it was an article t- called "What Do You Do When you're, uh, w- What Do You Do When the Future Feels Hopeless?" And so I don't know if you caught this article or not, but evidently it got a lot of traction because uh, it talked about it. Uh, this is a season where a lot of different things that we naturally put our hope in. Things like the economy, things like uh, your job that you can go to all the time, things like a, a church gathering that you could count on all the time, uh, things like health and the stability of our country and things like that. But it's talking about it. Uh, this is a season where a lot of different things we naturally put our hope in are proving to be things that we should not have our hope in in the first place. And so it went on and it talked about how hope is not always lost in seasons of hopelessness because that's when you and I are clearly able to see and discern the difference between true and false hope. And so it's exactly what Paul's going to be doing for us here in chapter 2. He's going to take us to this place of hopelessness by the end of the chapter, but it's there on purpose so that you and I are able to clearly tell the difference between true and false hope. Let go of make room, make, let go of the false hopes that we cling to and make room for the one true hope, which is Christ and Him glorified in the end. And so that's what we're going to be today. Uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 12 through 29. Again, you can go ahead and turn there. I'm going to be talking about two false hopes and a true one. So kind of like two truths and a lie, two false hopes and a true one right here uh, is kind of how we're going to do this thing. Uh, if, you, if you're just joining us in the middle of this series, here's what's going on. Paul's writing a letter to the church in Rome in the first century. It's a diverse body of believers, Jews and Gentiles living in the middle of a Roman world, a lot of oppression and opposition going on there. Uh, and he's essentially writing about uh, what, what is so great about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's laid it out there at the very beginning. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, right? He makes that statement and then he takes the rest of the time to back uh, that statement up and to talk about what's so great about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he wraps up chapter one, essentially answering the question, okay, what is so great about the gospel? Why does humanity even need to be saved? Right, like why do you and I even need the righteousness of God, which he talks about there in verse 17. And so he begins to answer that question at the end of the chapter by essentially saying, okay, humanity is broken. That's why we need to be saved. Humanity is broken. And even though God has made himself known in nature and in creation, you and I, by nature, we suppress the truth, we elevate ourselves, and we follow and worship and serve a thousand other little g-gods rather than the one true God himself. And so he wraps up chapter one with a lot of they language and a lot of, hey, here's what's wrong outside the walls of faith and and God and everything else. He's like, it's a lot of they language about how deep the problem is. And then he turns the script a little bit on us in chapter two, the religious people, the church, maybe even here at DBC. And he essentially holds up this mirror and he says, hey, okay, not so fast, my religious friend. Uh, you who judge another, you end up doing the exact same thing yourself. And so chapter two is turning it back on us and making us look inward right here. And so he gets into what we talked about last week. He says, uh, you who do the same, you're not, you, you, you who judge another, you practice the same thing. And then he talks about how in the day of judgment, this day still future, Christ is going to return again. This day of judgment, he's going to judge us on the basis of our works, which actually does make sense Uh, Because even though salvation really is a gift of God's grace alone that we receive through faith alone in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone, genuine saving faith is really never alone. We know that. We know that our works tell a story about who we really are. They tell a story about what we believe is actually true. And so uh, it's a little terrifying to think about this day of judgment coming in the future where our works will be examined. Nevertheless, he is bringing us there in this chapter. The good news is, according to verse 11, is that God is a God who is not, in, who is not partial in his judgments. That's what he says in verse 11. The good news is God is not a God who is partial in his judgment. Now, the bad news is there's two different false hopes And there's two different false motivations really for morality, for why we work, for what goes into the different works that we do that are going to both fall under the impartial judgment of God. And that's what we're getting into here in this section right here. There's two false hopes that we cling to that are both going to fall under the impartial judgment of God. I'm going to give them to you up front. We'll talk about them a little bit more here in the end. The first one is what I'm going to simply call self-centered relativism. Okay, self-centered relativism. We're going to see that in verse 12 to 16. It's going to come from an individualistic framework which says, I am my highest authority. There is no such thing as objective moral truth. Uh, I can do well on my own. Essentially, we've talked about this a whole lot in the past. It doesn't take, just take place out there. It takes place in here when we subtly elevate our place, ourself in the place of God. And we think, hey, you know what? I'm good on my own. And so that's the first thing he's going to talk about. We're going to expose that in just a minute. The second one is going to hit probably a little bit closer to home. and I'm going to simply call it um, religious moralism, if you will, religious moralism. And we're going to see that in the next section, which is 17 to 24. It is this religious mindset that, that says, okay, I know this is the word of God. I know this is what God's word says. I know this is what I should be doing. Therefore, I'm going to do it in order to be approved by God. Right, and it's this functional thing. We come in, and a lot of times we we do religion. We come to church. Uh, we obey some moral truths in order to assuage a guilty conscience in a lot of ways. Hey, I did bad things. I had a bad weekend. I've done a, had a bad life. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to make up for it in order to then be approved by God. And so that's going to be religious moralism. I talked about it last week in terms of empty religiosity, and it's going to be kind of a lot of the same themes taking place right there. And so Paul is going to take the rest of chapter two to essentially show us why both of these common moral frameworks are false hopes that you and I cannot cling to in the end. And so let's pick it up together here in verse 12. I'm gonna read it. It's gonna be really confusing, and then we're gonna talk about it until it's not confusing anymore. Okay? So here's what he says For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned underneath the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who will be justified, but it's the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, the question that he's dealing with here in this text, again, follow this here. The question that he's dealing with here in this text um, is essentially this. Okay, if God is a God who does not show partiality, then why did the Jews have access to the law? It feels like God shows partiality. Why so much favor given to the Jews? Keep in mind, he's speaking to a church that is comprised of mostly Jewish and Gentile, which are non-Jews, believers. They're coming together as one. They're living in a Roman Empire. There's a lot of different influences here. And they're kind of going, okay, well, it seems like God has been partial to the Jews. And so they're kind of going, okay, uh, if he's not partial, why did they have access to the moral law of God when everybody else didn't have as much direct access to the moral law of God? If there's a judgment that's based on our works and our works reveal genuine saving faith, then isn't it an advantage to have the law so that you can then go and do the works of the law, right? It's a a pretty normal concern that we might have if you're sitting in a diverse crowd right here. And so Paul's anticipating this question. And of course, the flip side may be true too. The flip side, they're kind of going, okay, um, is it more of an advantage to not be under the law Right? Is it more of an advantage to not be under the law and to simply claim ignorance on the day of judgment? In other words, is it better to not have heard than to have heard and be held accountable to a standard which you can never live up to? And so we're kind of looking at both of these two things. And so Paul jumps in here and he's going to be talking to the relativist. This is the person who's living apart from the authority of God's law, the Gentile who had no understanding of what God has given us in his word here. And he gives three explanations for how God's uh, judgment will always be impartial. First thing that he basically says is, okay, uh, everyone's going to die and be judged in the end. There's nothing that you can do to avoid that fact. He's impartial because, hey, you may try to be independent. You may try to do your own thing. You may try to live out from underneath the authority of God's word, but in the end, no one's going to escape death and no one's going to escape the judgment of God. And just because you did life being your own judge doesn't mean you get to do eternity being your own judge, essentially, right? And so that's what he's saying here in verse 12, um, for all who have sinned under the law will perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And so everyone's going to die. Everyone's going to be judged. Pretty simple point right there. The second point that he gets into right here is that that even if you don't accept the Bible as authoritative and true, even if you do not under live, even if you do not live underneath the law, God can still judge you fairly. God can still judge you justly by standards that you already accept. Okay? I want to say that again. Even if you are living as an individualist, right? You're living, hey, apart from God, not buying into the God thing, I can take the bull by the horns. I can do things fine on my own. Okay, take, say that that's the case. Like, God can still judge you fairly and justly based on standards that you already accept to be true. We're going to be seeing that again in the verse 14 and 15. He's going to be saying, Gentiles, they have a law unto themselves. Uh, they're relativists, right? They are their own law in a lot of ways. Even though they don't really have the law, their conscience bears witness. It sometimes accuses them of things that are wrong or even excuses them of things that are really okay. And so that's kind of what he's dealing with there. Even if you don't acknowledge the authority of God's word, you've still got your own law, which you have established for yourself. And based on the requirements of your own law, whatever that may be, you're still going to be falling short of that law. Why? Because according to verse 16, he says, God judges the secrets of men. And when he judges the secrets of men, it doesn't matter what law you're submitting to, you're still going to be falling short in the end. I love the way Francis Schaeffer describes this. He's going to clarify this for us because it's very, very confusing right here. But uh, he says this. He goes, I want you to imagine that on the day you were born, you were born with an invisible recorder hanging around your neck. Right? You can't see it. You can't feel it. You don't really know that it's there. But every single thing that you've said, every thought that you've ever thought about what other people ought to do, or what other people should be doing in the world is going to be recorded on that recorder for the for the entirety of your days. And so he goes, imagine that you get before God on the day of judgment. and Of course, you're shocked because you had no idea there was really going to be a day of judgment. But you come before Him, and God says, "Okay, take heart, because I, I, I am a just God, I am a fair God." But He comes and He, he comes to you and He says, uh, "You may not have known my, my you, you may not have known my moral standard, but we'll just take your own." And He says, "Hand me the recorder. We're going to hit play, and we're going to see how you." measure up according to your own standard right here. And he says, essentially, that same thing could hypothetically take place in eternity. You're going to hit play. Everything you've ever thought, everything that you've ever said about what other people should be doing, the standards that you've held other people to will be played before heaven and God that day. And what Paul is saying right here, there is not a person on the face of this planet that will be able to pass that test either. And so, it's a, again, it's a false hope to run to your own and to cling to this hope of individualism, uh, self-righteous or self-centered relativism or something like that. It is a false hope to cling to not only because, hey, Everyone's going to be at the same place, number one. You're all going to die. Everyone's going to face judgment one day. But number two, uh, he's not partial because he's going to land at the exact same place no matter the moral framework. It's a false hope that you cling to because you're going to end up at the exact same place. There's a third one here he gives us in the text, and this is going to take a little bit more time. But we see it in verse 14 and 15. But he's essentially saying that God has clearly made himself known, and he's made himself known by placing his law in the hearts of every man, woman, and child around the world. And so that's what he's saying. He's made himself known to all by putting his moral law upon our hearts. And so we see this in 14 and 15 again. Gentiles who by nature, they do the things of the law. Even though they don't have the law, they didn't know they're doing the things of the law. They show that the work of the law is already written on their hearts while their conscience bears witness to these things. In other words, everyone has been given at least some understanding of the moral law of God, even if they don't know that it's from him. God is a knowable God. We talked about this a number of different weeks ago. He's made himself known in the objects of creation. We should be able to look at what's been made and realize, hey, this didn't just come about by chance. There is a designer on the other side of this creation. And so he's made himself known to us in creation, but he's also made himself known in the moral laws of man. We feel it in the ways that we believe absolutely things are definitely true. In other words, like this is one of the reasons why self-centered relativism is a false hope. We think that you and I were coming up with all kinds of great moral laws on our own, things like basic human rights. Things like, hey, you should probably be nice and kind to other people. You probably shouldn't abuse them. You should probably shouldn't be mean to them. You should treat other people as you yourself would want to be treated. We think that we're coming up with all these great moral laws on our own when the reality is we're simply plagiarizing from God. And so uh, it's what philosophers call the moral argu- argument for the existence of God, right? And, and so they're, they're basically looking at this thing and they're going, hey, the fact of the matter is humanity uh, has always had such strong and absolute moral feelings, which are absolutely shared all around the world, right? It's not just here in Dallas, Texas, that we believe in basic human rights. We disagree about what they may be, but we believe in those things. It's not just here in Dallas. It's not just here in Dallas that we think, hey, you should probably treat other people as you should, deserve to be treated yourself. Uh, And so it it, it takes this thing and it says, um, even though we have these strong moral feelings and they're largely shared around the world, it comes to this conclusion that there must be this divine lawgiver who has placed his law inside of our hearts. And so Tim Keller comes along and he says, this is one of the most persuasive arguments in the academic community today. It's not so much the laws of the ontological argument or something like that, or they're just looking at trees going, hey, there's a lot of complexity. That points to the reality of God. He says, in higher academia, this is one of the most effective uh, apologetics that leads people to faith because people can't get away from the moral law of God. He gives a number of different examples. There's two of them that I really love. W.H. Auden was a uh, famous 20th, 20th century poet playwright, writer. Uh, Before World War II, he had walked away from the faith, denied it altogether. But by the time World War II was finished, he'd come to, I don't know if it was saving faith in Christ, but he'd come to an acknowledgement of the existence of God, at least at this point in time. But Auden explains his transition like this, but he says this. He says, before World War II took place, I believed that all normal people would believe in basic human rights, things like freedom and democracy and other good things like that. But then along came the Nazis And they were sophisticated, and they were educated, and they were incredibly well-to-do, but what they believed was the exact opposite. And so he comes and he says, "'If I am convinced that the highly educated Nazis are wrong, and we, the high and mighty English, are right, then what is it that validates my values and not theirs?' The English intellectuals that cry out against Hitler have no heaven to cry out to. I love that line. I'm going to say that again. The English intellectuals that cry out against Hitler, they have no heaven to cry out to. Because the whole trend of liberal thought has been to undermine any faith in the absolute and make individualistic reason the highest judge. But here's the problem, he says. He says, either we serve the unconditional absolute or we serve some Hitlerian monster Or or some Hitlerian monster will supply an ironclad reason to allow evil to persist." In other words, if the main operating principle in nature is survival of the fittest, which is something that Hitler strongly held to, right? Like the reason we got to where we are is because the strong oppress the weak and we win and we keep winning, 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 right? If that's the main operating principle that we find in nature, then reason can easily find absolutely nothing wrong with injustice or trampling upon human rights, and so he goes on and he says, like, that's what I realized. It is possible to account for moral feeling, but not for moral obligation apart from God. Like, you can have moral feeling apart from God. I can feel this is something that's the right thing to do. I cannot walk in moral obligation apart from God. As an individualist, I can say, I feel like this is the right thing to do. But it's only through the existence of God and an objective morality that he comes in that I actually can understand what moral obligation, meaning I have to behave this way and other people need to be held to this exact same moral standard right here. And so he wraps up his whole argument and he says, if there really is no God, then my moral obligation is simply imaginary. But since I know that there is an obligation, otherwise Hitler would be justified in the things that he did, There has to be a God. And it's exactly what Paul is getting at right here. He's saying he's not partial because God is a God who's noble. He's made himself known. He's put his moral law at least in part in the hearts of every man, woman, and child all around the world. We know that there are things we ought to do. We know that there are things that we are compelled to do. And all of these things point to the reality of God. And so he's made himself known. There's another story that he talks about. And I love this one right here. But he's talking about, uh, he's sharing a story about a cultural anthropologist that was doing a lot of work and research among indigenous tribes all around the world, especially tribes that have done a lot of oppression and uh, to and a lot of violence towards women and so she was very concerned about this and she 's saying, hey, there are a lot of people groups and a lot of tribes all the way around the world that are doing horrific things to women and they 're getting away with it and so she 's doing all this studying and she 's doing all this work and and um, And she comes back and she says, the problem with it is, she goes, the problem that I had was when I brought up my concerns to the various tribal leaders or to the people who had power and authority, the response that she got back was this, don't you dare push your white, Western, individualistic, human rights thing on us. How dare you think that your culture's values are right and ours are wrong? What's right for us is right for us. And so she writes about it in her book, and she says, like, this response had infuriated me because I had no basis to fight back and to say that what they were doing was universally wrong. And so she's really frustrated. She doesn't actually convert to faith or anything like this, but I love how she wraps up the end of her book. Check this out. She says this. She says, in the end, I unavoidably believe that equal rights is absolutely and universally true, even though I have no basis for it. And so I'm just going to keep working for equal rights anyway. Isn't that fascinating? Remember what we talked about a few weeks ago when we came to the knowledge of God? He's a knowable God. But when it comes to the knowledge of God, like we know about God, but we don't really know because we don't really want to know. Right? It's exactly what he's saying, church. like He's made himself known, not only in what we can see in creation, but what we can know about him since he's imprinted at least a bit of his moral conscience, his moral standard in the hearts of every man, woman, and child. He's made himself known, and so we know him, but we don't really know him simply because we don't want to know him. And so Keller goes on and he asks this awesome question. He simply says this He says, If your premise that there is no God, or and there is no such thing as a moral obligation. If your premise leads you to a conclusion that you know isn't true, something like, hey, oppressing women is okay. Violence towards women, violence towards the marginalized, like that's actually okay. If your premise leads you to a conclusion you know isn't true, doesn't it mean you should change your premise? Church, it's exactly what Paul's leading us to right here. Like he's saying, like, you, you, I need to show you what you're holding on to, and I need to show people these false hopes that they are clinging to that need to be changed. They need to be eradicated from our heart. And if you're seeing that they're not really true, shouldn't you actually turn from those things and change your premise to begin with? It's exactly what he's saying right here, church. There is no hope in, relative, in, in individualistic relativism. There is no hope in running away, doing your own thing, being your own authority, being your own god. Like you can see the in, you can see the inconsistency in it. You know that these obligations that you do feel in your heart. If anybody has any question about moral obligation, pay attention to the political conversations going on today. You will hear that people know there is moral obligation. Right, like there, there, there's no uncertainty about that whatsoever, and he's saying like he's saying that this you know you know that he's made himself known. There is no hope in individualism over there, but the flip side's also going to be true. He's going to continue in the rest of this chapter, and he's going to say in the same way that there's no hope in individualistic relativism, there's also no hope in religious moralism and he's going to speak to you and me and he's going to say hey this is a time we need to be examining what's going on in of our heart because there is no hope in simply religious moralism in other words meaning i am looking at morality i'm looking at the truths of god's word in such a way that i can go and i can go and then be approved before god and it's a subtle difference right here but he's going to be saying there is no hope for religious moralism either two reasons he says hypocrisy and idolatry you'll never be able to escape be able to escape either one of them In all of the greatest religious desires, you'll never be able to escape the fact that you will be a hypocrite at some point in your life. In the greatest religious pursuit, you will not escape from the fact that, hey, you do elevate little G gods all the time and place them on the throne of your life in place of the one true God. And it's exactly what he's gonna say, verse 17. If you call yourself a Jew and you rely upon the law, you boast in God, you know his will, you approve what's excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you're, that you're a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of truth and knowledge, you then who teach others, what he's saying right here in 17 to 20, you then who are religious and awesome, you then who grew up in the church, you did Awanas and you're like, you were first place in Awanas, you have every Bible verse memorized, you know every moral law that you should do, you love correcting other people, you preach from the pulpit. You who teach other children over there the ways of God. That's who he's speaking to right here. He says this, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? I mean, church, this is the definition of hypocrisy right here that he's attacking. He's saying, he's saying uh, you say one thing with your mouth, but you actually do Another. And of course, here's the fallout that he gets in. And I don't want you to miss the fallout. This is verse 24. He says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You want to know why they can't stand Yahweh? You want to know why they're not rushing to the church? You want to know why they're not amening and, and praising God right now? He's saying that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of our hypocrisy. In other words, this isn't just a thing that Barna's writing about today. This is a thing that is an age-old problem that's taking place from the very beginning. When religious people who are following God, we sing the praises of God, we pursue the things of God, and we continue in unrepentant hypocrisy. And I'm not talking about, hey, you just make some mistakes and then you repent and turn later. Unrepentant hypocrisy. The world pays attention to what's going on in your conversations. The world pays attention to your Facebook feed. The world pays attention to what's taking place in your home. The world pays attention to how you really work at work. The world pays attention to the things that you do, and he's saying right here that the name of God is blasphemed because of our unrepentant hypocrisy. I mean, I had this fascinating conversation this past week with a young woman, and uh I found myself up here at the church. I needed to be downtown uh, really, really quick. I didn't have my car with me that day. I didn't have access to it. And so I called up Lyft. And I was like, I need a ride. And so uh, she comes up here and picks me up. And we had a fascinating conversation all the way uh, downtown. But she comes and picks up a pastor at a church. And so I think she probably knew we were probably going to have a faith-based conversation at some point. And um, she starts telling me a little bit about her own story. And she's like, yeah, I I actually grew up in a church. Uh, Church was my thing. But she goes, I want nothing to do with it anymore because of the massive amounts of hypocrisy that was all over the place. And I lamented with her and I mourned with her. I was like, tell me about that. I was like, I was like that's been my experience too. I was like, by the way, that's been my experience in my own life. Like I've noticed my own personal hypocrisy. So it's not surprising that you may see parts of it in the church. All over, what happened? And she went off and she just told her story about this. We were a poor, desperate, in need family. And we came to the church and they would not help us until we gave them more of our money because that was the seed of faith that would spur on the blessing of God, right? And so they're like, we were a poor, they preyed on our family. And they never actually came around to helping us and caring for us and paying attention to the things that we had need for. They just kept wanting more and more and more and more and more and more. And she goes, I wanted nothing to do with that church. And so, and and I I sat there and I listened and I was like, you're right. And I was like, can I just tell you, that is not how it was supposed to be. Can I just tell you, like from God's word, Jesus hated hypocrisy. In fact, he he talked about it in Matthew 23. He he looks at a, a religious group of people, the Pharisees who had it all figured out. And he says, he calls them, you empty, whitewashed tombs. And he rebukes him, he hates hypocrisy that much. Can I just tell you, church, like when I started talking about hypocrisy and Jesus' attitude towards this, the walls in the conversation immediately came down. By the way, church, like if you wanna take the sting out of a hypocrisy accusation, all you gotta do is be honest about it. Like you wanna take the sting out of a hypocrisy accusation, all you gotta do is live in vulnerability, live in total and complete honesty, showing that your hope is not in your ability to always get things right. Like, you want to take the sting out of that thing? Don't talk, don't act, don't get so defensive to where you live like and you communicate a message where it communicates that your hope is in your ability to always get things right. Like, when I started getting vulnerable and saying, hey, yeah, this happens. This happens in me. It's why I come before the Lord God every day and I say, God, eradicate the sin from my life. Bring it to my attention. I ask, invite other people into my life and say, hey, what do I not see myself? I want to eradicate this thing. It's a terrifying place to be. Church, when you walk in honesty and vulnerability about the things that are true and you communicate, my hope is not in my ability to get it all right. My hope is in the God who came and got it right on my behalf. Like it breaks down walls. Uh, when you live in compassion and vulnerability, it breaks down all walls. I'm telling you, like, a conversation turned, and it was a fantastic conversation. She asked me, like, how did you get into ministry? Why did you get into this thing? And when I started talking to her, like, why we got into ministry, started preaching to her a little bit of this message. I was, like, I was like, the Bible tells us the best of your religion, it can't actually save. I was like, the message I'm working on this week, I was like, the best of religion, what you saw back then, it can't actually save. But the Bible also says what you're doing right now and running from him and pursuing individualism, that isn't the answer either. And what Jesus, it's not that and how Jesus is different from religion because when Jesus came, he didn't just come to teach us a brand new way. Jesus came to cleanse us of our sin by giving you and me a brand new heart and a brand new Holy Spirit that would begin to change you from the inside out. Church, like that's what this whole thing is all about. I mean, you got to understand the hypocrisy that he's talking about here. It's not just about the things that you do. It's about saying, hey, there's something deeper inside of you that is problematic that needs to be eradicated from your life. Jesus talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. He says, you've heard it said you shouldn't murder, but I'm telling you, yeah, you shouldn't even get so angry that you call someone else in your life a fool. In other words, it's fantastic you haven't killed somebody here, but I'm saying, hey, my holiness standard right here is so much bigger than, hey, I didn't pull the trigger. I want you to pay attention to the anger. I want you to pay attention to the desires in your life that make you want to kill. It's the same thing in 27. You've heard it said you shouldn't commit adultery, but I'm telling you there's a higher standard in place. There's a greater thing that I want to pay attention to. It's it's not that you just shouldn't commit adultery, but I'm telling you, you shouldn't even lust over someone who's not your spouse. In other words, like it's great. Again, you have not actually done the deed, but what Jesus is saying is here is, is that holiness begins in the heart. That's what's going on. Like, holiness begins the heart. And the problem is, who can honestly come before the Lord their God and say, my heart is perfectly clean? Like, who can honestly say, like, I've never lusted, I've never felt greed, I've never felt envy when I drive through some of these beautiful neighborhoods around us. Like, I've never coveted, I've never gossiped about somebody else, I've never felt jealous inside of my soul. Charlie, that's what's going on in this passage. It's the same thing that's going on here with the idols. He's attacking the hearts and the motivation of, of what's going on inside of our soul. It's why he says, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Like, it's a metaphor. He's not talking about literally, do you hold them up and steal their idols or something like that? You who abhor idols, do you do the same things? Do you rob and take the things that, that should be only gods? Do you rob and, and elevate little g gods and put them in the place of the one true God? And of course, the answer to this question is yes. Like, this is what we do by nature. We worship a thousand other little G gods that aren't the one true God. And if we're being honest, and we're looking in a mirror with holiness right next to us right over here, you will see the problem is deep inside of my soul. It is an unrepented heart that is hardened before a holy God that does not want to do or honor him in anything that we do. That's why he talks about circumcision here at the end of the chapter. Like Paul gets into this weird section right here and he talks about circumcision. You're kind of going, okay, what's the point of this whole thing right here? But, but circumcision was a sign of the old covenant, kind of like baptism now is a sign of the new covenant. But he says true circumcision in verse 28 and 29 is not about what's done on, out, on the outside. It's not about just a procedure that you may or may not have had when you were a kid. Like true circumcision is about what the Holy Spirit has actually done in your heart. And so it's got nothing to do with living totally and completely by the letter of the law. It's Jesus when he's talking to Nicodemus and he says, Yeah, you must be born again, Nicodemus. You remember this? And uh, G- Nicodemus comes to him and he says, Okay, you don't understand who I am, Jesus. Like, I'm a Pharisee, I'm a member of the Sanhedrin. Like, I'm that religious moralist that has it down to perfection. I'm that person that has nailed religion to a T. You don't like, this is who he is. He's one of the most dedicated and sincere, educated and religious people on the planet. And Jesus is going, hey, uh, Nicodemus, that is fantastic. But the problem is you are still missing the point because all of those great things cannot give you a new heart. It cannot give you a desire and a brand new motivation to follow Jesus and worship him with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. All they can do is give you a list of things to do in order, in the hopes that you may be approved, but that's not the thing that you can cling to over here. I mean, Isaiah Church is clear about the problem going on inside of our soul. He says, all of that righteousness, all of your sincerity, all of the perfect church attendance... All the obedience, the great religious practice, it's like filthy rags before a holy God. Jeremiah's gonna say the heart is deceitful above all other things. Like who could understand it? Like it's not just those people over there. It's not just a person you're married to. Your own heart. Like the heart is deceitful above all things. Who could understand it? It's why Paul says there's none who are righteous, not even one person. There's none who understands. There's no one who seeks after God. In other words, church, what he's saying is left to ourselves. You and I are totally and completely hopeless. We are struggling to get to the surface of the ocean, and no matter how hard we try, we keep getting pushed further and further down. Individualism doesn't work because you see how inconsistent it is, and because I can't even attain my own moral standard. Like, that doesn't work. Religious moralism doesn't work because, hey, like, I understand, like, even though, no no matter how hard I try, like, I've still got this heart in me that does not want to honor him and, and do the things that are good. That's why Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, anyone who reads and understands the Sermon on the Mount will never be able to say, oh, how wonderful it is. This is such a beautiful sermon to behold. They'll only be able to read it and say, Father, be merciful to me and save me. Church, that's the point of this passage, that you and I would come to the end of our hopelessness so that we can grab hold of the thing that can bring you hope. We have to let go of those things. We have to see that these are false hopes that so many in the world cling to. And what Paul is saying rip them out of your life. They are false. You cannot cling to these things and ever hope to be renewed. There's one true hope. It is in the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the one who is merciful. He is the one who gives you a brand new life and a brand new heart and a brand new spirit and a brand new motivation and changes you from the inside out. But church, first we have to come to the place of hopelessness where we see these things can't save and there's only one true God who can come and save. It is the point of this passage. And we have to get to the end. I'll tell you one of the, the ironies of this, of my, my feeling of desperation in the ocean that day. It felt like hours I was down there wrestling with the, the tensions that were pushing me down. And I did come to this place of hopelessness where I was like, I can't fight anymore. I was down there and I was struggling to get, I could not get to the surface. And I finally let go. And the irony is as, fine, as soon as I let go, God, by his grace, like there was a woof that came up and I got rushed to the surface. I was finally able to breathe again. And, and that is exactly what he's saying to us today. Church, some of you just need to stop. Some of us need to stop. Some of you listening online, and you need to stop running in independence and in relativism. You are not a good God. You are not a good judge who judges fairly. There is, there is incons- there's a false hope that you're clinging to and you need to stop running wherever you may be. And some of us are running in religious moralism, and he's saying, You've got to stop. It is a false hope. I know it looks good. I know it feels good to have this around here and stuff, but it is a false hope if you are clinging to it in order to be approved. Church, the one true hope we can cling to today is that God is merciful. He is merciful in the middle of all of our brokenness and in the middle of all of our sin in the middle of all of our wandering and in the middle of hopelessness. We are not without hope because God is merciful when we stop and we make room for him to come and take over. I love the way Ezekiel talks about this. He is giving the people of God, the Israelites, hope in a time of absolute hopelessness. He writes about it in Ezekiel chapter 36. This is the time when uh, Israel is going away into Babylonian captivity. There have already been, wars already taken place. And you remember this, there's a judgment coming up on Israel at that point in time. It's about 6th century BC. Israel's under the judgment of God. They're under the judgment of God because they continue to persist in religious hypocrisy and unrepentant idolatry. And for centuries, God used different prophets calling the people to repent and they would not repent. And so finally God comes and he says, I'm going to bring the judgment of God so you'll come to this place of hopelessness and see. What can actually bring you hope? But I want you to see what he points you to, what he points us to here in Ezekiel 36. He's giving him hope in the middle of captivity. And here's what he says about the future. He says, I will take you out of the nations and I will gather you from all the countries and I'll bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all of your idolatry. I will give you a brand new heart and I'll give you a brand new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and and move you to follow my decrees so that you're careful to keep my laws. Church, that that is our hope. Our hope is in the merciful God in heaven who came and he got it right for us. And he removes this heart of flesh and he throws it away and deep into the sea and he gives us a brand new, I'm sorry, he removes the heart of stone and he gives us a brand new heart of flesh. They will long to worship him and follow him with a brand new motivation not to be saved, but simply because I have been saved. Church, the question that's on the table very simply this morning is this, has he ever traveled the 18 inches necessary to move from your head down into your heart? He is preparing people today to say all these different things we've been clinging to. Religious moralism, as great as it may be, and it may look the same on the on, on the backside of things, but it is a false hope that you are clinging to if you're thinking that that is going to make you right before God. This individualism over here, it is a false hope before God. And what he is saying is you've got to leave those things behind and allow the gospel, allow the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to penetrate not just your head, but to come down the 18 inches necessary deep into your heart to this point where you receive him as Lord and Savior. And he Comes in and he gives you that brand new heart of flesh and the brand new motivation and this desire to worship him and follow, you, follow him for the rest of your days. Have you ever allowed him to take that journey in your life? J.D. Greer shares this illustration and I love it. He talks about Dr. Christian Barnard, who was, um, who was the, a South, Af- South African cardiac surgeon who performed the world's first person to person heart transplant surgery that was successful. Um, Evidently, after the second transplant surgery, the doctor, or the, the patient comes to him and says, hey, doc, can I see my old heart? It was the first time anybody had actually held their own heart in their hands. And so he's like, yeah, sure. He takes him over to the cupboard, and he, he brings out his whole old heart, which was in a glass jar, and he allows him to hold it. And according to the story, the man just, is, is just looking at his old heart. And in disgust, he says, this is the heart that was causing me so much trouble for so many years. It's yours. Want nothing to do with it. And he turned around and he just walked away that day and never saw it again. That's exactly what he's calling from us today. That you would look at that old heart of stone and say, I want nothing to do with it anymore. I want nothing to do with it anymore. That you would hand it over to the great physician and say, give me that heart of flesh. Give me that brand new light. Give me that brand new Holy Spirit. Breathe life into me so that I'm not working doing religious things for my own good in order to be approved, but I'm working in such a way that is full of joy and gratitude and worship simply because I have been saved. Father, would you come and give me that brand new heart of flesh? I'm gonna invite Kim and the worship team up here right now and to come up, and I'll just tell you this. This is where I wanna land the plane today. I wanna give us a time of response, and I wanna give us a time to reflect upon what God has done inside the deepest recesses of our soul. This is a song that early in the week, she saw some of my notes, and we were talking about what I was going to be talking about this week. And um, and she goes, hey, I, I really feel like I'd I, I love to sing this song over the church in the end as a response song. I never heard of it before. It's a song called Make Room. And uh, it's a beautiful song. If you've been around DBC for a while, Alyssa Smith, who used to sing and, and be a part of leading worship here a, number, a few years back, she actually wrote the song. And But it's a beautiful song. And what I love about the song, she told me about it. I immediately YouTubed it. And I just kept it on repeat for the rest of the week. It's just one of these songs. And it's a beautiful song of declaration. Where the person, we are coming before the Lord our God. And we're simply coming and saying, uh, and we're saying, Father, come. I'm making room in my heart for you. Would you come and remove the things in in my life that don't need to be there? I'm coming and I'm making room for you. It's a beautiful declaration. It's just repeating that over and over again. Some of the lyrics that I love, I will make room for you to do whatever it is that you want me to do. Shake up the ground, and I love this part. It's a declaration saying, shake up the ground of all of my tradition. Shake up the ground of all of my religion. Break down the walls of my religion. Your way is better. Your way is better. And so I'm gonna invite her to come and sing over us in just a moment. First, I'm going to invite you to bow with me right now. Father, our common confession today is that your way is so much better. You're the one who knit us together from the very beginning. You know what's problematic in our lives. You know what false hopes we cling to. You know the one true hope is your son, Jesus Christ, who came and lived the perfect life that we could not live. And he died the death that we were supposed to die so that we who come to genuine faith may live now and for all of eternity. Father, that's our hope. It's our hope that we cling to. We're not clinging to our religious practice. Even though I may walk in morality and walk in obedience, I'm not clinging to religious morality to be right before you. I'm not clinging to independence and this self-made law unto myself. God, I'm a terrible God. My confession is that you alone are the one true God and I'm clinging to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the newness of life that you came to bring. And for the person who's here today that has never come to you in genuine saving faith, may they do so today. Church, I wanna give you a moment. Would you just sit there and just Ask this question, are there any false hopes that you've been clinging to today? And maybe they're not false hopes for salvation. Maybe they're simply false hopes that you've been clinging to in a very unstable time that we're living in right now. But are there any false hopes that you've been clinging to which need to be eradicated from your heart today? I'm going to give you a minute to just reflect on that. And then I'm going to invite Kim and the team to sing over us and then we'll wrap it up in prayer in just a moment. Father, that's it. We want to make room for you to do whatever it is that you want to do in our lives, God. You eradicate everything in our lives, everything in our heart that's getting in the way, Lord Jesus. Would you come and take over, Father? Would you come and take over? For someone today who's never come to you in genuine faith, maybe they've been blocked by individualism or they've been blocked by religious morality. Father, I pray that those false hopes would be eradicated, that they would let go, that they would push them out, say yes to you and make room for you to come in and to do whatever it is that you want to do in their life, would you give them a brand new heart? Would you give them a brand new Holy Spirit? Would you give them brand new motivations to worship you and to serve you, to love you, to obey you, to follow you all the days of our lives? If that's you, the Bible just as simply says, if you'll come to him in faith, confessing your sin, recognizing that Jesus Christ is Lord, that God the Father raised him from the dead three days after the crucifixion, you will be saved now and for all of eternity. Would you come to him in genuine saving faith today? And for the person that's saying, you know what, I do have that, that renewed heart. I have that newness of life. It just simply doesn't feel very new right now because I've been clinging to all these false hopes in a very unstable time right now. Would you let go of those false hopes? Money, security, family, would you make room for Jesus to come in and to do whatever it is that he wants to do. God, you're a good God. We trust you. We love you. We worship you, God. We long to see you praised all around the world. We look forward to the day when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. So God, right now we just say, come Lord Jesus, come in us. Have your way in us. In Jesus' mighty and holy name that we pray, amen. And amen.